Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right, we're going to cover two chapters today. Let me get my notes over here. We're going to be in chapters 10 and 11 today in the book of Hosea. You can go ahead and turn there. Sermon title this morning is Warning and Grace. Warning and Grace. We're going to see judgment and love in back-to-back chapters. And the way the rest of the book of Hosea breaks down is helpful as we start to take a little bit bigger view of the book of Hosea. So this week we're covering two chapters and it's quite possible, probable, that we'll cover three chapters next week and then wrap up the book of Hosea before we get into 1 Peter. So that's where we're going to be this week and then next week. Um, We want to finish this book well though. It'd be easy for us to just kind of push through it too quickly and I definitely don't want to do that. But we're going to see again uh, the judgment of God on his people and it seems quite relentless. In fact, in most of your Bibles, the heading starting in chapter 13 is the relentless judgment on Israel. It just keeps coming and keeps coming as we've seen over the last couple months. But we see Israel, again, reject God's grace. We hear about judgment. And when we hear about judgment from our perspective, we're going to be thinking a lot about Jesus today. And so chapter 10, judgment. Chapter 11, God's mercy. And if we hang on, we're going to see again some really great things. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we get into these two chapters. Men, if you would, lift up holy hands and let's go before the Lord. God, we thank you that we don't make our hands holy, but you have declared us holy. And so we raise our hands in this room today as recipients of your grace. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus that has washed us clean Thank you that we have been declared righteous. We thank you for our families. We thank you for our friends. We thank you for the people that are in this room. And we pray now, right now, for blessing upon us all. We pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want us to hear from this word from the prophet so many years ago. Holy Spirit, help us to navigate these passages, some of the difficult passages that we look at today, and help us to see your glory in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn to chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Chapters 10 and 11. I think I said 11 and 12. Sorry, 10 and 11 today. Starting in verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The fruit is fruit. The more the fruit, his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what good could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth Haven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its adulterous, idolatrous priests, those who reject over it and over its glory. 
for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. We find yet again in verse 1 that Israel is bringing forth bad fruit. They were and are a luxurious vine. They should have amazing and wonderful fruit coming from the vine that is the people of God. But instead, what's happening is as the vine is growing, the fruit is increasing, but it's bad fruit. The fruit that we see in Israel, instead of being things like righteousness and godliness and justice and goodness and mercy, what we find is that more idols and altars are being built to false gods. The fruit that's coming, instead of being the fruit of righteousness and holiness, instead we see more altars being built to false gods. So as the kingdom is experiencing blessing and and prosperity, they're using that blessing and prosperity not to thank God for it, but to thank false gods for it and improve their pillars. Altars being expanded, pillars being built up and improved. You can think about the, the beauty that would be taken in by the craftsmen as they're working to build pillars and altars and their time that they're putting into that instead of that time and energy being directed and the fruit growing to the glory of God. Instead, they're putting their efforts into false and idolatrous worship. There is fruit, it's just really bad fruit. It's not good fruit. Anybody tasted a persimmon before it's actually ripe? Ever been into persimmon? It just looks so good from a persimmon tree and you bite into it and you're like, Ugh, it's awful and it's cotton mouth. It's just awful tasting. The fruit is indeed growing, but it's really bad fruit in Israel. And two, verse two, we find that their hearts are having problems because we're even told that their heart is false. There's something deeply false there's not a trueness about God's people. You know, it's, it's awesome to meet somebody. And, and you know when you meet somebody that they are who they are no matter who they're around. You might, might be that kind of person. It doesn't matter who you're around. You're not that chameleon. And it's really great to meet a godly person that you know. I know what this person says they mean and what they mean they say. And no matter who they're going to be around, they're just going to be the same person. They are who they are no matter who they're around. There's something true about that person. There's something really authentic about that person. We all know about fake authenticity. Fake authenticity is really, really popular in churches today. It's really popular. So we got to be authentic to where everybody goes in. And the only kind of real authenticity that's allowed is misery. It's like, yeah, I'm really authentic. I blew it this week. Everything's miserable. Everything's terrible. And there's a time and place for coming in and being helped by that. But real authenticity is also the ability to say, things are great, I'm really excited, I'm happy, God's at work. And that person is going to be that person, whether that, there's, no, there's not this feeling or pressure that I've got to be something that I'm not. And Israel, we find, is false down to the bone, down to their very core. Their heart is false. It's not true. And now they're going to have to bear their guilt and God, we find, is going to tear down their altars. There's going to be a day that these altars are broken down. They're destroyed. They don't have staying power. False gods never do. They always change. They always adapt. But they're always raising up new gods, building new altars, building new pillars. But pillars made of stone eventually crumble. In fact, the greatest buildings in all the world have a shelf life. There's a time that everything that we see will eventually crumble and be broken. God's going to break down and tear down their altars and destroy those pillars. They don't have the ability to build them strong enough that God won't be able to tear them down. 
Israel's unfaithfulness is continuing to be repeated. In verse 4, we find out that they speak with empty words. They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. They're just talkers. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. This is Israel. Loud mouth boasters who cannot do what they say they're going to do. There's false worship even at the core of the northern kingdom, capital city, Samaria. In verse 5, we find that there's the worship of this calf of Bethaven. And the people mourn for it. They're idolaters for it. They've raised up priests for this false worship. And in verse 6, we find that even shame is coming. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. So judgment's coming, right? Nothing's new in the book of Hosea, right? More judgment, all right, got it. Turn the page, more judgment, got it, okay. Turn the page, more judgment, got it. And it's there for a reason. Imagine being the original audience of this. And it's easy for us, now hearing about this thousands of years later, and even being able to see Christ in it, it's easy to just want to be done hearing more oracles of judgment, more prophecies of judgment. It's like when you're reading the book of Leviticus in your Bible reading plan, you're going through Leviticus and you're halfway through and you're like, if I have to read another chapter of Leviticus, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. You, you long for good news. And friends, that's part of why the law exists. It, 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 you're reading it and that's some of the feeling you're supposed to experience. Can I please have some good news because there is a burden that I feel when I'm reading this. It's the same thing with prophecy of judgment. What they should have felt, what they should have done is turn. What they should have felt is conviction of sin. And yet Israel proved themselves unfaithful over and over again, page after page after page. Prophecy after prophecy, oracle after oracle. So judgment's going to come. Look at verse 7 through 10. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. See, there's no staying power. Not only will they be destroyed, but then over them, over the destroyed pillars and altars, there's going to be thorns and thistles that just grow over them. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust, unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. God tells them again, judgment's coming and it's going to be in my timing. And there's nothing that can be done about it. When I please, I will discipline them. It's really crucial for us to understand that these are not empty threats. That Israel ended up being surrounded. That Assyria did come in the year 70-40, about 100 years before the southern kingdom, Judah, was judged and brought into exile. The northern kingdom was judged first by Assyria and overtaken. These were real judgments with real consequences that were coming Israel's way. And it's important for us to understand that when we get to some later verses here in a little bit, if we're going to understand God's mercy. We see that judgment is coming and it's going to be in God's timing and they're going to be bound up for their double iniquity. Nations shall be gathered against them. And these are not empty promises. And so we again hear from Hosea and God in verse 11 and 12. I want us to turn their, your attention back to the text. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah 
must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea the preacher feels the weight of this judgment, and he calls out to God's people and tells them what they should do. We see the yoke is coming. God tells them, Ephraim, you were like this trained calf, but now on your neck is going to be this burden, this yoke that's going to come. And so Hosea turns to them, and he makes an appeal. The preacher stands and preaches. That's what preachers do. That's what prophets do. They herald the word of the Lord. And so he calls out to them, instead of doing what you're doing, Instead of bringing forth this really ugly, terrible, smelly, stinky persimmon fruit that's not ripe, this ugly, evil fruit, instead, sow for yourself righteousness that you would reap steadfast love. Israel, there's a better way to live. It's a whole lot better to worship the Most High God, to sow right things, than it is to sow wrong things and to worship false gods. That's better. If you get on the scale of better and worse, it's better to worship God and sow righteousness than it is to worship false gods and sow unrighteousness, which ends up reaping rotten fruit. It's a whole lot better. So Hosea, the preacher, the prophet, preaches, break up your fallow ground that's laying dormant. Come awake and seek the Lord. And in the seeking of the Lord, Righteousness comes down upon them, what they need. Break up that fallow ground and the rain of righteousness. Spiritual fallow ground. Break it up, sow towards righteousness, and the rain of God will come and bring good fruit. But Israel's, you know, like the child that doesn't want to hear the discipline from the parent, the untrained child puts their finger in their ears and they start to hum or they start to ignore their parents. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. And that's what Israel does. Verse 13. Instead of plowing righteousness, Hosea says, sowing righteousness, you have plowed iniquity and you have reaped injustice. And you have eaten the fruit of lies. There's always fruit. There's sowing and then there's always fruit. And the question is, is it going to be good fruit or bad fruit? There's always consequences to our actions. And if we sow in unrighteousness, if we worship false gods, there's always going to be fruit. And the question is, what kind of fruit is it going to be? Back to verse 13, you've eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Two issues that plagued Israel. They plowed iniquity, they reaped injustice. When you plow sin, you get sin. It's just, it's just a one-to-one. It's woven into creation. That's just how it works. And instead of trusting in the Lord and in God's ways, they trusted in their own way and their own power. That's trusting in your warriors. It's trusting in the might of your military forces or the strength that's in your hands. And this is a temptation of, of everyone in the history of the world, is it not? This is the great rebellion of trusting in our own way. This is what we see in the garden forward is Eve and <clears throat> Adam Trusting in their way rather than in God's way. Trusting in the ability of their hands to get what they think they need rather than trusting in God's ability to give them what they need. It's a distrust of God. And this play is over and over again down through the history of the world, down into our very hearts. 
You see, even Christians that have the Holy Spirit and have a new heart within us, although every single Christian in here, your deepest desire is to honor and obey the Lord. That's the deepest longing. That's the cry of your heart. You have a new heart. You don't have an old heart of stone anymore. You have a heart of flesh, a new heart. But yet, we still have indwelling sin, and we have this temptation still to this day inside of us to want to do what Israel is doing here, which is doing things our own way and trusting in our own might. There is a good kind of self-reliance. There is a good kind of stick-to-itiveness or a fix-itness of of being able to figure things out on your own. There's a good kind of, of that kind of thing. But then there's a very evil, <clears throat> evil kind of self-reliance. And there's a very evil kind of trusting in our own power. You know, uh, it, the book of Galatians tells us that we have burdens to bear for one another, but we also have loads that we, we also have to carry that God puts upon us, that obligations and responsibilities that he's given us. And it's a good thing to carry out those obligations and responsibilities with humble, spirit-led confidence. I can do what God's called me to do with his help, with the Lord's help. I want to do what he's called me to do, and I'm going to go after it. I'm not going to be afraid. I want to go after it with all my might, and I'm going to trust him to do it. That's a big difference from I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to demand God bless me for it, and then I'm going to trust in my own abilities, not seek wisdom, not seek counsel, not ask for help, I'm going to do it my way, and it's going to be my way or the highway. There's a massive difference. And Israel here is doing the latter, not the former. They're trusting in their own way and in the multitude of their warriors. It's the wrong kind of plowing. Instead of that fallow ground being broken up and life coming from it and rain coming down upon it and producing good fruit, what they're doing in that fallow ground is plowing the wrong kind of thing. Trusting in their own way. And so war's coming. Judgment's coming. It's not new news. We know it's coming even as we walk through it. Look at verse 14. <coughs> Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arabil on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel. Because of your great evil, at dawn, the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. The, the, the judgments, like the, the nature of the judgments of Israel, and I was just reading this week, reading in Josephus, reading about A.D. 70, and really that is a, a repeat of some of the judgments they'd had in the past. When Israel was judged by Assyria, or when they were judged by the Babylonians and brought into captivity, it was brutal. Cities were decimated. Families were, without being too vivid, it, it was as gruesome as it could possibly be. Gut-wrenching. Even to people who are <coughs> in rebellion against God, it would be difficult to see this kind of stuff happen to your family. And this is real judgment that came to real people for their real sins. And it was real justice upon them. There were names. There were cries it was real judgment. Assyria would end up, like I said, invading in 70, 740 B.C. And this was before the delayed judgment on Judah. Judah got a few things right more than Israel did in the north. And there was somewhat of a delayed judgment. But Assyria, Assyria did come. <coughs> now, 
We're going to make a massive transition here, and <clears throat> we're going to have to do some theological work here to understand what's about to happen, because it's quite stunning. It really is. The sermon title this morning, like I said, is Wrath and Grace, Warning and Grace, or Judgment and Grace, or Judgment and Good News. You could call it any number of things. We see a repeated theme in chapter 10, but then in chapter 11, we see something fascinating. God's going to use some anthropomorphic language, which means he's going to speak of himself as if he is a man and has like man-like passions or emotions. And God is not a man, but he's going to speak as if he is one to explain or trying to help us understand what's God's view from all this. What's it like from God's perspective? As we see this rebellion, what's God's thoughts about this? And we're going to see about God's mighty love. Look at verse 1 in 11 as we make this stunning transition. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. We see in this passage that God's love is never disconnected from his wrath. God is not part and partial, like he's, he, he's all of these things all at once. And when you see God's wrath, you can't think, well, God's love is put on the shelf. Or when you see God's love, you can't think, well, God's wrath is put on the shelf. And in this moment, you see that judgment comes, but in this judgment, you also see God's mighty love for Israel. God loved Israel. The physical nation of Israel, the ethnic Jews, those who were in the physical bloodline of Abraham, God loved them and he chose them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 8, I want you to hear this about God speaking of Israel. And he tells us why he loved Israel, why he chose Israel. And it's all in God's heart for them. It was just because he loved them. Starting in verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So here's all the peoples that were on the face of the earth. And God turned to Abraham and to his seed, Israel, and he said, I'm choosing to love you. I'm loving you. And this is what it says. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to his fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is national election. God chose a nation, Israel, an ethnic group of people, and said, you're mine. I love you. You're mine. I'm yours. I'm going to be committed to you. This is national election. He loved the nation of Israel. 
And back to Hosea, he taught them to walk. He taught them to walk. He actually calls them his son, which, by the way, is a pointer to the son, Jesus Christ, who would come in their stead. Let me find my place here. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals. And God is saying, I love them. I chose you. I taught you to walk. And in this language, we think about doing this for our own children and teaching our children to walk and how much we love them and watch them walk. You need to watch them walk. And Providence is at this age. She's right now at the stage where she's standing. We've seen her, sta seen her stand how many times? Like four or five times? Maybe a little more. We're trying to, you know, coax her into walking. You know, come on, walk. And there's, there's tenderness there and there's love there. We care for them, care for her. And it's a special thing when your kids start walking, you know. You, you're like, this is great. And then you're like, wait, I thought it was special, but it was actually better when they weren't mobile and they were just standing on this blanket, staying right here on this blanket. And they move and you're like, yes, this is great. And you're like, this isn't that great. But God's saying he taught his son to walk. And he kept calling to them, Israel, 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 my son. And they kept turning away. They kept walking away. And instead of worshiping God, they kept worshiping false gods. They kept breaking up the ground and sowing into false gods. And God's like, hey, what about God here? And it's easy to look and think, well, well, there's injustice. And we talked about last week the importance of never judging God, but judging rightly and recognizing that God's judgment don't say anything negative about God. They tell us about our sinfulness. God's judgment tells us what mankind deserves. God's saying, I love them. God was still faithful to them. Look at verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. You think about God delivering them out of Egypt, and then they turned to Aaron, and they said, Aaron, we, we, need, to, we need to take our gold, and instead of worshiping the God who's now teaching us to walk, the God who rescued us out of Egypt, instead, we're going to make a golden calf. And Aaron, I want you to do this for us. Moses is gone now. We don't know if he's coming back. And we're going to tell that calf, that, that calf is the one that rescued us from the hand of Pharaoh. We see this again and again. God kept calling them. They kept going away. Instead of worshiping God, they kept worshiping false God. He taught them. He healed them. He had them in his arms. He led them and he even fed them. And yet they kept rejecting him. Rejection after rejection after rejection. Rebellion after rebellion. No prophets. We won't listen. And finally it all culminates by rejecting even the Messiah. And so yet again, there's consequences. Look at verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High God, he shall not raise them up at all. They're bent on turning away from God. So God's here, and Israel is looking at God there, saying, it's me who loves you, it's me who's taught you to walk, it's me who fed you, it's me who's done all of this all along. I love you. And Israel's like, oh, thanks. 
is bent on continuing from a heart level, continuing to turn away from God and walk in the other direction. And as we think about this, the, the agony and the language that's used here is intended to, to, to pull at us, to think, oh my gosh, this is, this is rebellion against God. And it's, it's, it's taking the arrow and it's shooting him where it hurts the worst. God's people saying, we're going to get you where it hurts the worst. Even though it's you who's taught us to walk, we're going to keep going and worshiping false gods. We're going to keep breaking up this ground. We're going to keep sowing bad seeds. And we're going to keep worshiping false gods and not giving you the credit that you deserve. We're going to keep trusting in the work of our hands and the might of our warriors. So Assyria is coming. Swords are coming to their city. But then again, we see this astounding transition and this is where we're going to have to do some real work because I want you to look at verse 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Wait, what? I will not destroy Ephraim? We just talked about how swords were coming, Assyria is coming. Judgment's coming to Ephraim, to Israel, later on to Judah. Cities will be destroyed. This is a historical fact. I will not come in wrath? Well, how can you come in judgment? Are these just idle threats? Is God kind of like schizophrenic here? Is he kind of like saying, I'm going to judge you and I'm not going to judge you? I'm coming in wrath and judgment. I'm not coming in wrath and judgment. I've changed my mind. No, you're not going to be judged now. Something's going on here. I mean, something pretty stunning is going on here, actually. How can God come in wrath and not come in wrath? How can God destroy Ephraim and not destroy Ephraim? How can God love Israel and also reject and judge Israel? God says, my heart recoils within me. Again, there's that anthropomorphic language where God is giving words to himself, helping us understand something of what this is like, even though God does not have passions like we do or even emotions in the same way that we do. And his compassion is growing. And, you know, as we hear past these verses, even though we may be confused, okay, how can these things be true without this being God changing his mind or something? It's almost like, it's like, this is what I've been longing for. I've, I've been waiting, it's been all culminating, and then I hear, how can I give you up, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And it's like, yes, please bring us some compassion. Yes, please give us some mercy, give us some grace. And then we hear, I will not execute my burning anger. I mean, it's like, yes, thank you, God. I will not destroy Ephraim. We see that God's holy. He even says he's not going to come in wrath. So how can, this thing, how can this be? How can this be 
this being a little past the middle of the book, but how can God, at chapter after chapter, saying he's coming in wrath and judgment, then say he's not coming in wrath and judgment? Was it empty threats? Is God just simply saying, nope, judgment's not coming, which is a massive problem when we think about historical reality and then other prophetic books because we see judgment is coming. So how can God bring judgment and wrath and not bring judgment and wrath? You have a logical, what seems like a logical inconsistency here. How can God bring judgment and wrath and not bring judgment and wrath? I'm so glad you're asking such great questions, everybody. <clears throat> These were not empty words. And this is where we have to understand Old Testament Israel. This is where we have to understand the difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Natural Israel and supernatural Israel. And we see this in both the Old and the New Testaments. We're going to do some theological work here. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look specifically at verse 6 through 8. And this is critical for us to understand. Or I just don't know what in the world we could do or how we would understand the book of Hosea. Starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Pause. We've talked about this before, especially when we went through the book of Romans, the difference between national election, which is a true thing, and individual election, which is a true thing. So there's a difference between national and individual election. But specifically... What Paul is doing here is telling us something about the nature of Israel. When we say Israel, we have to ask, what do you mean Israel? Okay? Because in the history of God's workings, we need to understand things in right and proportionate place. There's still to this day a lot of talk about Israel, correct? And a lot of questions about how do we understand Israel? What is, what the, what's the nature of prophecy? Is God going to do something in the future with Israel? Is, who are the chosen people of God and what does it mean to be the chosen people of God? So these questions come up. Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his, his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Okay, here's what that means. There is a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. The physical Israel was all of the people that came from Abraham's bloodline, the physical Jews. That's the, that's the physical bloodline, and that bloodline continues to go to this day with an ethnic people, the Jewish people. And we have brothers and sisters that are a part of the Jewish people. So that is physical Israel. But what Paul is saying is, that doesn't make you the real Israel, the true Israel. And it never has. They've had the title of the nation state, but the real Israel are not those who simply have the right bloodline, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. It's children who are of the promise that are counted as offspring. 
So only those in the Old Testament chosen by grace and evidenced by believing in the promises of God by faith, is Paul saying, are the real Israel. That's the real Israel. The true Israel. The physical Israel, the spiritual Israel. The nation of Israel itself, the nation of Israel itself, the physical bloodline, experienced judgment after judgment. But in the Old Testament, what you see is this remnant, always chosen by grace, always believing in the promises of God in the small minority of God's people. And what Paul's saying is they were the true Israel. That's the real Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, some of God's promises were for all of God's people, the Jews. But it's clear that there is a distinction from the old to the new. Those of faith and those who are just born in the bloodline are two different groups of people. And what you want to be is not, if you're born in the Jewish background or even today from the Jewish bloodline, what you want to be is a child of God, not simply a child in the physical bloodline of Abraham. And so that nation would experience judgment. They would be pulled out of their land. They would be judged by, Israel, by Assyria and Judah by Babylon. Their cities would be destroyed, even all the way up. And this is a, the long-suffering of the Lord with the nation of Israel. It lasted with a series of rescues and judgment all the way until A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Because God did bring wrath and judgment on a nation that he loved. And here's the deal. He ended that national physical connection. But there is another Israel that's the real Israel and it's always been the real Israel. It's the spiritual Israel. There is a spiritual Israel that's the real Israel. It's always been there. There are brothers and sisters across testaments. Children of faith that God has saved by faith and faith alone in the promises of God and ultimately in the work of Jesus Christ. Those in the Old Testament looking ahead and those now in the New Testament looking back and trusting not in the power of our hands, not that what we can do in our breaking up that fallow ground, not what we can do by sowing and reaping, but what Christ has done in his sowing and reaping, reaping and experiencing fruit and the reward of his life. There's a real Israel, the Israel of faith. Now, back to Hosea. We have to understand these categories here. Back to Hosea 8 and 9. Let me read this again. Chapter 11, 8 and 9. <clears throat> How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. For the physical Israel, they experienced judgment and wrath. Like I said, Assyria, God's anger coming toward them. Verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 9, and in chapter 10, or chapter 8, it says the same thing. But listen, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. They will be punished and judged, physical Israel. And that happened. And because that happened in that judgment, God doesn't have this. The, the Jewish people today in the physical bloodline are not the chosen people of God. You are. 
If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all those in the bloodline of Abraham, if by grace they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are a part of the true Israel. That's the Israel we want to be a part of. Children of faith. We are children of Abraham by faith, not by being born in the right family or the right ethnic group or because of our parents or grandparents or anybody else, but because of what Christ has done. And that's the Israel we want to be a part of. Spiritual Israel. Now we think about spiritual Israel. And then when we have these categories, we can approach these passages and it comes, it comes together. It makes sense. I will not execute my burning anger. How in the world can people who deserve judgment not experience it? How in the world can people who deserve God's wrath not experience it? There is no other way except through Jesus Christ. And you see, Jesus did come from the physical bloodline of Abraham. And he did obey and do all that he was supposed to do in the stead of real people. In the stead of sinners. And Jesus himself is the one who came and experienced the anger of God and experienced the wrath of God. Therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't experience it. The real Israel will never experience the wrath of God. And friends, this is glorious news. This, whether they realized it or not at the time, was such good news being heralded to them. There's a way to not experience God's anger. There's a way to not experience God's wrath. And the real Israel, the real McCoy, will never experience any drop of God's wrath because of what Christ has done. We are the ones that wrath will not come upon. We are the ones that won't experience his burning anger. And yet Israel of old has. They have experienced it. And all those who die apart from Christ will experience it. They will experience his burning anger. They will experience his wrath. And that is a fearful thing. If you don't know the Lord, today is the day of salvation. What on earth are you waiting for? The options before you, Spurgeon one time preached a sermon that now street preachers get made fun of if they've got a sign out there on a sign street corner and people are like, look at that mean guy out there. And, and Spurgeon's sermon title was Turn or Burn. That was the sermon title. People were like, man, that's mean. You know what's really mean? Knowing that, that truth, that if you don't turn, you'll burn and not telling people about it. That's real mean. Because if you don't turn then you will experience judgment and wrath. And these people that Hosea was speaking to experienced that actually and then for eternity. But for that remnant, for those who believed in the promises of God, they didn't. And it's all because the lion of the tribe of Judah, look at verse 10, they shall go on after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. We'll get to that here in a minute, because there's textual variant there with verse 12. Jesus in Revelation is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Rising up from Judah, there's going to be a lion, the Messiah that will come. 
And there's questions and debate by commentators of what this passage and what the timeline of this passage and the fulfillment of this passage means, which I'll read to you here in a minute. But there is some in Israel that will come after the Lord. They shall go after the Lord. When will they go after the Lord? Some of those within that physical Israel. When will they go after the Lord? When he roars like a lion. When he roars. And you got these Narnian pictures that come up in your mind. You remember when that first time <coughs> when Narnia was talking to the white witch? I mean, uh, when uh, Edmund is captured. And if you've not seen Narnia, sorry, read the book first, then watch the movie. Um, but it's a powerful scene. He's in captivity. And the white witch comes up to demand the price, and she wants Edmund's blood. And then she goes in, and, you know, they have this powwow, and she comes out, and she says, how will I know that you'll keep your promise? And Aslan the lion roars, just, and it's just earth-shaking, and she just rattles and shakes in her boots. It's a powerful scene. And you get this scene, the lion of the tribe of Judah, there's a lion, there's going to be a lion that roars. We think this is, to, to read the Bible literally is to miss what it's saying. It's not saying there's going to be a physical lion roaring, and then when that physical lion in Africa or somewhere is roaring, this is spiritual reality here. There's going to be a lion that roars, and when the lion roars, that's going to be the cue, and people are going to start coming, and the children are going to come trembling from the west. There's going to be a trembling nature. The lion is called, and I'm trembling and walking my way towards him. His roar is powerful enough to bring home the trembling who are in captivity, in slavery, and even in bondage in, in Assyria. And in other words, the slavery they're in, the judgment they are under is no match for the lion when he roars. The roar comes out, come home. And they turn. Okay. And they walk toward the lion. And my goodness, what in the world is going on here? J.A. Moiter, a commentator, he said this, It's not easy to know what stage of history is in mind here, whether some immediate day of the lion's roar, like is this, is this right now, such as the overthrow of Babylon, which brought the, the remnant of Israel home to Jerusalem, or the, super, or the spiritual homecoming of God's sons of many nations in the gospel age. And I think there could be a couple implications to this where there's implications then and now but I know this there's an intentionality to John the Revelator calling Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah and there's connections here from the testaments that I think help us that there's going to be a day that Israel's not lost forever that there is a remnant there and that nation that God loved they will actually be preserved through those who would believe and be saved by Jesus Christ ethnic Jews that will even be saved by Jesus and Israel as a whole, Jew and Gentile, saved by this one King Jesus. The lion will roar, and when he roars, we come home. I think it's both. I think there was historical implications and realities, and I think there's present realities right now. I think this is pointing us to Jesus. I think this is a gospel age reality. And God would miraculously save his people one day in physical reality through Esther in the capital city of Susa, where they would be delivered out of Babylon also through Ezra and Nehemiah. There's the historical reality of them coming home, a remnant of his people, but then also, as we see, the lion, the lion roars and we've come home. There's a true Israel. Verse 12, as we wrap things up, there's confusion about, like if you read your King James or New King James, you read your ESV uh, or NIV, it's going to say uh, that Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. 
But if you read the NASB, it says the exact opposite of that. If you have the NASB, read it out. Who's got, I know Terry does back there. He's always got the NASB. Read that out, Vicki. Okay, so ESV, it says, and Judah still walks with God. The RSV, uh, or NASB says that Judah's unfaithful too. So which is it? That's a problem, right? If we're trusting God's word, it's inerrant. I want to explain it to you because I think it's important. This is a commentator <clears throat> that's going to explain this, and then we'll wrap it up. If we understand, we're talking about verse 12b. This will help you if you get this here of why things can be the way they are in different translations sometimes. If we understand verse 12 correctly, Judah is in precisely the same predicament. So same predicament as, as Israel. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Her behavior is parallel to Ephraim's, not sharply different from it, from it, despite the renderings of the authorized version, which is the King James, and the Revised Standard Version, which is the predecessor of the ESV. The key to our interpretation is the meaning of God, which is the Hebrew word El, and the Holy Ones, which is a Hebrew word I can't pronunciate. God here probably means El, the high God of the Canaanites, and not Yahweh. So the word in the Hebrew was El, and what the ASV and King James thought that meant, and they, they're, they're tra they translated that into God, Whereas the NASB translated into El, the Canaanite God, a false god. So they didn't see this as worship rendered to the Most High God, but worship to a false god. So we know the word, we know it's inerrant, the, the manuscripts say El. The question is how the translator is going to translate. Is that, is that God or is that a false god, a Canaanite god? Now I think the NASB was right on this, that Judah was also unfaithful like Ephraim because that's what are like like Ephraim and Israel because that's what we see in the whole book here is that Judah was in this false worship as well so here's what we do we wrap up these two chapters and we see there's a whole lot of trouble for the nation of Israel and for Judah and the only help the only way is if God's going to do something because he tells us that there is a way for the Nation of Judah and the nation or nation of Israel in the north and Judah to the south, there is a way for them to not experience God's wrath and not experience God's judgment. And it has to do something with something about this lion and the, the lion roaring. Somehow or another, this lion is connected to wrath and judgment. And here's what we can say, summarizing it. Without the lion of the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus. Israel and Judah have no hope of heaven and only expectation that they can have is one of judgment and wrath. And here's, what the same, here's what's the same for everybody in the, in the history of the world. It's the same for everyone. We can only expect, every single person in this world on this earth right now can only expect judgment and wrath unless... By God's grace, you hear the lion roar. Unless you hear the lion of the tribe of Judah, unless you hear that effectual call where God screams through the Christ, through the blood of Christ into your life, and it brings you trembling 
to Jesus, knowing that I don't deserve to get to come to him, and yet he's called me to him anyways. Unless you hear that call, unless you come and repent and believe, there is no hope of heaven for you either, only judgment and wrath. And maybe today you're the one who sees God's wrath upon you. Here's judgment and declarations of judgment coming your way. And you hear page after page of judgment coming to Israel, and you know that's what's coming to me too. I've been the one that's turned and said, no. I've been the one that's broken up the followed ground and sowed bad seeds. I've been the one who's raised up idols in my heart and worshiped false gods. I've been the one that's trusting in my own hands and my power and my strength. Unless you realize the folly of your ways and repent and turn to Jesus, you are doomed. But... There's hope in Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus today. And if you're in Christ Jesus today, there is so much to celebrate because no judgment's coming your way and no wrath is coming your way. You can go out and take this world for Jesus without fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your strength, your presence, your power. Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us as we work through difficult passages, helping us to see you in the pages of the scriptures. Jesus, Thank you that you tell us that all of God's word is about you, that you're everywhere. You're just in the pages waiting for us to commune with you. And so we want to see you there. And we want to experience your presence and power in real life, in real time right now. We thank you for what you're doing in this room. I pray that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that they would hear your roar, your call, and they would repent and believe today. And for all of us that are your children that get to eat at your table, thank you for being tender with us. Thank you for taking us up and teaching us how to walk. Thank you for being patient with us because of what Christ has done. You have been so kind. You got to help us to relish that, to enjoy your kindness to us as we sing these songs. God, we come today not to violently raise our fist and say we're committed to you and we'll never disobey again. We come to remember the great covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly in our behalf. And it's going to be our joy to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.